The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Marthan, and Marthan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <laughs> well, good morning. Peace be with you. Today, as Nora said, we, we started a two-and-a-half-year journey through the book of Matthew, and our heart behind this series is, is really, it's pretty simple. We're going to dive into this, and we want to go verse by verse, you know, as we just attested to in the reading. Uh, we want to we cover every word in Matthew's gospel so that we might grow in our knowledge and our understanding of God's word. That's one of the, the goals for this series. But the second goal of this is that we want to grow in our love for and our devotion to Jesus. And we believe that that happens by the power of the Spirit, through God's Word, and with a lot of prayer. And so, if you would, will you pray with me as we begin to jump into this text? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that even though the weather was bad, it wasn't that bad, that we could be here. We thank you that we get to come to your Word, and we start in this journey, and we hold this journey before you through the book of Matthew. Lord, we know that you long for us to know you and to seek your face, and you honor that when we do. And so we pray in this series that you would give us hearts that would look beyond ourselves, hearts that would turn from sin, that would turn from self-centeredness, 
hearts that would look above the horizon to you and what you're doing. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our midst, that he would be stirring things in our soul, that he would bring conviction of sin, but even more than that, love for you and your ways. Lord, we, we come to you humbly asking for you to do a new work in our midst. And we ask all of this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, before we get into this genealogy, um, which I'm going to tell you, it's fascinating. I know some of you, you're like, we trudged through the snow to get here, and this is the text that we got today. Uh, it's a really fascinating text. But before we get there, I just want to give you a little bit of background on Matthew. And we're going to give background information kind of throughout this series uh, about Matthew, about this incredible book we have, but Matthew was a disciple who became an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Matthew wrote this book, this gospel, somewhere, we don't have an exact date, but it's somewhere between 30 and 50 years after Jesus's ascension. And it's important to note that Matthew, he didn't wait 30 to 50 years to write this, he spent 30 to 50 years writing this. Matthew's gospel was Matthew's life's work. And throughout church history, throughout history, just human history of the last 2,000 years, it's widely recognized as one of the great masterpieces. It's Matthew's magnum opus and his masterpiece. And like any masterpiece, if you've ever read a really great novel or listened to a really great album or seen a really great movie that you look and you say, that's a masterpiece, what makes them masterpieces is you can go back to them again and again and again. And there's layers upon layers and layers of meaning. And you think you understand it, and then you read the book again, and you see it in an entirely new, not, new light. That's what Matthew's gospel is. And at a basic level, it's a biography of Jesus. Um, it's not less than a biography, but it, it's a little more than a biography. Usually people write biographies to tell you why someone's life and their legacy matters. And Matthew's definitely doing that, but where... This gospel diverges from a usual bio is that Matthew, he's not content with us admiring Jesus or recognizing that Jesus had a great legacy. Matthew's goal, his aim in writing this, the reason he spent 30 to 50 years crafting this book is because he wants everyone to bow down and worship Jesus as king and to give themselves to him as disciples. And we know this because the very final words from Matthew's book, he records for us Jesus' words known as the Great Commission. Matthew ends his book by holding this before us where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission, Matthew fulfills this Great Commission by giving us his gospel so that we might know all the things Jesus has taught, so that we might obey and become disciples. This is what Matthew's going for. And so he is structuring his book. This is important. He's structuring this book because he's trying to make a case to us that Jesus is worth everything. 
He's worth our devotion. He's worth our time. He's worth our, mo- our money, our affections. Not only is he worth everything, following him, be, being a disciple of his, to do that, it's, you have to be willing and it's totally worth it to leave anything that gets in the way of being his disciple behind. So that's what Matthew's going for. This book, it's, it's not a sentimental bio, biography. It's really a revolutionary manifesto. It's a call to radical discipleship. And so how does Matthew begin his masterpiece, this call to unwavering loyalty and radical discipleship of Jesus? A genealogy with 47 names. And I'll be honest, I was like, should we have the reader read it or just read verse 1? And then when I found out it was Brian, I was like, he can handle it, so we'll give it to him. But even in having, it it was interesting to me, even in... Do we have him read it? It's like that's our tendency, isn't it? Like we come to genealogies and there's a real temptation to kind of just skip over. Maybe you try to pronounce like four or five of the names and then you skim until you get to something that seems really, really important. Well, Matthew spent his life writing this book and composing it. And there is a very beautiful structure and order to it as we'll see through this series. And so he didn't put this genealogy in here because he he didn't know how to start it. He didn't include this because he was like, I got to put it somewhere. Let's just get it out of the way. He put it here for a reason. Matthew's trying to tell us something. And you know, on a most basic level, what Matthew's telling us is that this genealogy, it roots Jesus in space, time, and history. Here's what I mean. If Matthew began his gospel and he said, once upon a time, or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, when you read it, you would know that he's telling us a story, a fable. You know, filled with good moral lessons, uh, or maybe a hero and some inspiration. But when Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy, he's saying, Jesus, he has roots on this earth, not in Oz. And he was a real man with a real family. And if he were to type his name into Ancestry.com, he would find ancestors. He's come from among us. So that's a basic understanding of what the genealogy says. But this genealogy in particular, I'll tell you, if you're willing to do a little work, it's just dripping with promises and hope and grace. And so this morning, with the rest of our time, I want to look at three of the promises that this genealogy holds forth for us. This genealogy, it promises us the hope of a new beginning. It promises us the fulfillment. And this is a big, a big statement, but I thought about these words. This genealogy promises the fulfillment of our deepest longings as human beings. And then lastly, this genealogy promises us the grace that covers our sin and welcomes us into God's family. So we're going to look at those three, starting with the hope of a new beginning. And when Matthew, he wrote his gospel, he didn't title it the gospel according to Matthew. That's how we've come to know it. But Matthew didn't title it that way. Matthew's title for his gospel is actually found in verse 1 when he writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, 
That's a very fine and accurate translation, but, but for us, we're missing something that's really, really important and that anyone who read this in the original language would see because for us, it starts with the book of the genealogy, but that's actually the translation's translation of two Greek words. And those two Greek words are biblos genesos, book of Genesis. And this isn't an accident or a coincidence. Matthew was writing, to the people of God, there's been 400 years of silence from heaven. He writes his gospel and he begins it with the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is making an intentional connection between Jesus' birth and the birth of the world. And he's saying the only thing, the only, the only way you can begin to wrap your minds around the story and the life I'm about to hold before you is to think as big as creation. We know in Genesis that God created humanity to live in relationship with him as co-rulers over creation. And we all know that sin damaged that relationship. And what we see from Genesis 3 onward is this cycle that repeats over and over and over again. Humanity basically from Genesis 3 onward, they got on this, you know, merry-go-round. And it's like they love God for a while and then they sin, they rebel, God brings judgment, they suffer, they cry out for redemption, God sends a deliverer, they're redeemed, they walk with God and then I don't know, sometimes it's 10 years, sometimes it's 10 minutes. They rebel, they sin, they fall. And just round and round, history goes over and over again. And you actually can see it in the genealogy when you look at it. That Matthew's saying, this is how it goes. There's great promises, and then people squander the promises. And people wander from God. And this cycle, it continues on and on throughout the Old Testament, throughout human history, until this period, 400 years before Christ is born, where all of a sudden, people, I mean, the people of God are living in a very dark place, and they're crying out to God, and at that point, the heavens just closed, and there was no more word from heaven. There was no more promises, there was no more prophets. It seemed like maybe God had given up. And what Matthew says here is God didn't give up. He was preparing the greatest work in history, the work not of creation, but of recreation. And in saying the book of the Genesis, the book of the new Genesis, he's saying that Jesus Christ, he's bringing that cycle that humanity's lived in to an end. Because he's not just another prophet, not just another priest, judge, or king. He's all of those things and more. And his birth means the end of the temple, end of the sacrificial system, because his body is the temple, and because he offers himself as a sacrifice. And so when Matthew says, the book of the Genesis, he's saying the deepest beginning in history was not the birth of the world, but the birth of the world's savior. Now and again, this is kind of, I've spent probably too much time, if that's possible, studying this, but one of the things I find so interesting is this is how Matthew begins. Book of Genesis, 
You know how Matthew ends, the last words, to the end of the age. This is very intentional. His book begins with Genesis, ends with the end of the age, and he's saying the whole world is contained and contingent and hangs like like a hinge. It hangs on the life of this man, Jesus. So that's what Matthew's holding before us. He's not, he's not going to explain it all right now, but he's saying what you're getting yourself into is something incredible. The magnitude is going to be hard for you to wrap your mind around. It's the hope of a new beginning. And while it's true for the world, we know that that's what Jesus does for us. And that's the promise of Christianity. It's the hope of new beginnings. I can't, I can't help but wonder for Matthew himself when he was writing this, to start with those words and to think about his own new beginning. We know from Matthew 9 that Matthew was a tax collector. We've talked about these tax collectors before, but tax collectors were despised in a way that's really hard for us to understand. When you go through the scriptures, you'll see the Pharisees, they'll talk about the sinners and tax collectors. It's not that the tax collectors weren't sinners. It's just that they were so bad, the sinners were like, please don't associate us with the tax collectors because tax collectors they were traitors Matthew he was a Jewish man who sold out to the Roman government collected taxes collecting taxes from his countrymen he got rich off the back of his fellow Israelites and so here's a guy who he was nominal in his faith towards God and he was alone. And we learn in chapter 9 that Jesus, as he went on from there, Jesus was out teaching. He saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. That the promise of a new beginning, it's not just an abstract belief for this world. Matthew, who would have had no friends, no community, no nothing, Jesus shows up in his life and he says, hey, come with me. He doesn't see him as a traitor or a sinner or a loser or any of those things. He sees him as a potential disciple. And so it's the start of a new year. It's the start of a new series. We like new years. We like new. Why do we like new? Because I think one of the reasons we like new is because it, it gives us a hope. It stirs in us a hope for change right, that we can actually change and we can grow, that this year doesn't have to be like last year. That's why we like the new year. That's why we make resolutions. That's what we're saying. I, I want this year to be different. Well, the promise of this gospel is that you really can experience a new beginning. And I asked you last week, who do you want to become? What ways do you want this year to be different than last year? Maybe your faith has been nominal, just kind of been superficial. Maybe the new beginning this year is you actually come to know God. Maybe there's a cycle in your life of sin and you really want to see it broken. I want to give you a word of hope. The gospel promises new beginnings. 
and that where you are today doesn't have to define who you are for the rest of your time on this earth. I can remember in my own life just a number of new beginnings that came in my walk with Christ, and I don't think those new beginnings are over. I'm hoping and praying. And so as we think about the journey in this book, we'll finish it in two and a half years, Lord willing. How do you want to be different two and a half years from now? What do you want God to do? And what would it look like to start praying and working towards that end? The hope of a new beginning. It's also, this text gives us the promise. It promises to fulfill our deepest longings. Um, Matthew, while he's saying this is a new beginning, he wants to be really clear that what he's writing here, it's not in opposition to anything in the Old Testament. So Matthew, it would be a great mistake to hear new beginning and think that what Matthew's saying is, all right, everything up till now doesn't really matter. Here's what really matters. Matthew's actually deeply concerned with the Old Testament And he's going to refer back again and again and again throughout this study to the Old Testament because one of the major themes of Matthew is the theme of fulfillment. Is that God makes promises and God keeps his promises. God keeps his word. And we see this in the second half of verse 1 where he says the book of the genealogy, the book of the Genesis of, and then he gives four titles for his subject. Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And all four of these titles, they're loaded with meaning because all four of these titles, they speak to different promises and hopes that God's made, promises he's made, things that the people of God have hoped in. Starting with Jesus. Jesus is is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. And it's important, I didn't know this, you know, for a very long time, Jesus, it wasn't like only Jesus was named Jesus. It's actually a really, really common name like Steve. Uh, but, it, but it had meaning woven into it. And the meaning is that, we'll see it next week, that God saves. And the reason people would name their sons Joshua is because they were looking back to the deep roots of the name that trace all the way back to Moses' successor after they'd been wandering around in the wilderness And they never actually got to go into the promised land. You know, they get right up to the border, but they don't actually cross over. And then Moses dies, and Joshua takes over, and Joshua actually leads his people, the people of God, into the promised land. Jesus. Christ. Christ. It's not Jesus' last name. Christ is actually not a name at all. Christ is actually a job description in the scriptures. Christ and Messiah, they're synonymous. And the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, I'll be be really honest with you, the Messiah is a, a very kind of strange, mysterious figure in the Old Testament. There's a lot of prophecies and like rumors and whispers about this Messiah that's to come, but they're kind of, It's like no one quite knew how they all fit together. The only thing people were certain of is that the Messiah would deliver God's people in power. That he would come in power and deliver them. The rest of what the Messiah was was a mystery. And people, people of God, we've never liked mystery. 
you know, when God gives us a couple of things, we always want to fill in all of the gaps. And so that's what people started doing with Messiah. If you, by the time Jesus was born, they started filling in the gaps for their lives in their particular context, assuming that that was the truth. I don't know if you've ever had a friend or a relative, coworker, someone you know who's really into the end times. Anyone have, like they've got the charts, the flow charts, the graphs, and they're explaining, they get so fired up, and for some reason, every time, they never are like, you know what, Jesus is coming back in 630 years. It's always like he's coming back in two months. Have you ever noticed that? They always fill in the gaps in such a way that it's, I figured it out, and it's about us. We're the generation. Of all the generations, we are the ones. Well, people did the same thing with Messiah. And in Jesus' day, because the Israelites had they were suffering under Rome's oppression. They had just filled in all of these blanks that God had not filled in and said the Messiah is going to come and overthrow Rome. That wasn't the promise. The promise is that he would deliver in power. Jesus, the Christ. And then Matthew, he pulls out the big guns. He says he's the son of David. And in saying Jesus is the son of David, he's not just saying Jesus is David's descendant. He's actually pointing to one of the two greatest promises God ever gave to his people. We can trace this promise back to 2 Samuel 7, where God says to David, David had longed to build a temple for God, and God says to him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What an amazing promise to get from God. I would love to get that promise, right? Now we read it, and if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that part of this promise was actually fulfilled by Solomon. He actually went and built the temple, but the problem is Solomon also died. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise and he keeps using this one word that's problematic. It's the word forever. 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 Eight times in 2 Samuel 7, the word forever is used. He didn't just say, David, I'm going to give you a son who's going to have a long, healthy reign. He said, your descendants are going to rule forever. Just consider the magnitude of that claim. One of your descendants is going to rule forever. And this promise, if, if you just stop and think about it, like the, there's not going to be party disputes. There's going to be one king forever. It's a good promise. And the people of God clung to this promise. I mean, this was like one of the things that really defined them and shaped them was the longing for this eternal forever king. And then the prophets, they would go and they would draw on this. If you, you look at this very famous passage from Isaiah 9, and I, I could have read 15, 20 more like it, but, but I'll spare you. I'll just read you this one. This was written long after that promise was made. It's a prophecy, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Matthew is saying, he's here. And I'm going to tell you about him. And you've longed to see him. And he's come. His name's Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the son of David. But Matthew doesn't stop there. He gives us one more. He says he's also the son of Abraham. And just like with David, when he refers to him as the son of Abraham, he's not just saying he's a descendant of Abraham. He's actually calling to remembrance the second of the two great promises God made to his people. The first was the king that he made to David, who would rule forever. But there's actually one that's a lot older than that. It goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Genesis 1 through 11, God creates, man falls, and then things just get progressively worse. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 12, God shows up to a man named Abraham. And we're told... Verse 1 of Genesis 12, God came to Abraham and said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Any good, good Jew through, throughout history, up until the time of Jesus, this would be like, one was their left hand, one was their right hand, these promises. And this promise here is that sin will not have the last say. This promise here is that blessings will flow. And blessing for us, it's, it's kind of a stiff word or a sentimental word or, I don't know, it's a word that, that doesn't always translate because it's, it's got some baggage, but bless, blessing, it means flourishing, Blessing means goodness. As my friend Jonah says, blessing means all things good. And when God says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, you're going to bless the world, and in you, all of the families, everyone is going to experience blessing, that's a big promise. The world's going to flourish through you. The promise what makes it so interesting is it wasn't just to the Israelites. It wasn't just to the Jews. This was a promise that would extend to everyone everywhere. Now, <laughs> if we hold these titles together, we begin to understand the magnitude of the claims that Matthew was making in his gospel. And we begin to understand why Matthew is saying, if you have to hate your father and mother, if you have to leave behind your nets, if you have to quit your job, whatever you have to do, you have to follow this man. Because he's Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the one who's came to fulfill God's great promises. And these promises that Jesus came to fulfill, I actually think they speak to the deepest longings in every human heart. 
we actually all, regardless of your religious background, we long for all of these things. The promise of forgiveness in the name Jesus. Every single one of us, we might not call it sin, but we don't want our sin to define us. We don't want the dumb decisions that we've made or maybe we're making right now to have the last say in our life. And Matthew's saying they won't. God saves. The promise of deliverance, that God will deliver us in power. Maybe you feel stuck. Could be spiritually, could be in this world. The promise of a deliverer, the Christ, means that where we are today doesn't have to define where we are tomorrow. And we can be people of profound hope because God delivers people in power. The promise of a righteous king who will set the world right and rule forever in goodness. We all long for that. We all long to live in a world filled with peace and justice. And this is why we all go crazy about politics, right? I don't think people's passions for politics are wrong. I think they're hardwired within us. We long for a righteous government. We long for a righteous king. We all have, as one author put it, this groping, inarticulate conviction that if only the right ruler would come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. Jesus is the benevolent king we long for. And then we all long for blessing and flourishing. We all, we all want life to go well. We all want to see good. We all want to see beauty. We don't want to see ugliness or darkness or broke. We all long for blessing. And Matthew, in the very first line of his genealogy, is saying it's all in this man. It's all right here. Now remember, this is Matthew's introduction. He's trying to grab you. He's not defending all of these claims just yet. He's inviting you to come and see. To press in. And actually explore with honesty and openness the life of this man, Jesus. And what I found is often that's the work that people are afraid to do. People will dismiss Jesus, you know. And I... I get it. Like, I get you can go and explore the evidence and you can dismiss him. I can at least kind of understand where people are coming from who do that. What I can understand are people who are like, all religions are the same. Like, they all teach the same thing. I actually read an article one time in one magazine and I kind of have it all figured out, but that's who we are as a people, right? We read one web page and all of a sudden we're experts on things. I can't understand people who won't go and explore the life of this man, Jesus. And to say our religions are the same, they're not. 2,000 years ago, the world changed. I don't care what you believe. Just look at history. 2,000 years ago, the world changed, and everyone from Christians and non-Christians will say, yeah, and it's the strangest thing. It started with a bunch of uneducated nobodies. But they started like talking about this man, Jesus, and they made these claims about him. And next thing you know, the greatest empire in the history of the world was transformed by it. Matthew's saying, what you are longing for is found in this man. And it's worth the time and the energy to investigate. 
He brings the hope of a new beginning. He brings the promise of the fulfillment of our greatest longing. And lastly, he gives us the grace that covers our sin and welcomes us into our family, welcomes us into his family. And we need this grace because to investigate these claims, it actually stirs things up. To, to talk about what we desire and long for, it stirs things up in us. And that's a lot of the reason why we don't like to talk about the big things in life because you start talking about big things in life, you're afraid of what you're going to kick up. Desires, memories, thoughts, feelings. And that's where you need this hope and this promise of grace. Verse 1, it's the easy part. Verse 2 is where we really get into the weeds of Jesus' lineage. Um, And it's here where our minds start to wonder. When we read it, we start to wonder, I think a lot of us, are we pronouncing the name right? When Brian's reading, isn't that what we're all thinking? I hope he's pronouncing that right. Uh, That's what's going through our heads. But it's important to remember that embedded in every one of these hard-to-pronounce names is a person's life and their story. And for the original readers of Matthew, these weren't just hard-to-pronounce names. They knew these people's names, and they knew their stories. It's like reading the name George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Like they, they triggered memories and maybe even emotions and feelings. And for the original readers, as they're hearing this list of 47 names, thinking about these people's story, they're starting to find the common thread that almost every story included here is a story of dysfunction, brokenness, and sin. From top to bottom. Everyone in here, like they've got some serious baggage that they're carrying with them. And Matthew He seems to be emphasizing it. There's strange things in this genealogy. One, he includes women. Back in that day, women would, you wouldn't include them unless they were a queen, maybe. And Matthew, he doesn't just include women. It's the women that he includes that's really shocking. We have Tamar, who seduced and slept with her father-in-law because he was a wicked man and she was looking for justice. You have Rahab, who was a prostitute by trade, You had Ruth, who was a racial outsider, and she did her own kind of seduction on Boaz. It's a little different, you know. True love waits seduction, but seduction nonetheless. Messy, broken women. And then you have stories of men. Some of the men in this genealogy are really wicked. Rehoboam, Abijah, Ahaz, Ahaz. You can go read his story. Ahaz basically was like, I like the worship of all of these false gods. And so he brings it and he starts implementing it in the temple. And then he ends up sacrificing his own son, burning his own son alive and worship of the false god Moloch. It's in the genealogy. It's Jesus' great, great granddad. And then you also have the heroes of the faith, right? Abraham and David, we just talked about them. But their lives were so messy too. Abraham, not once but twice, tried to pawn his wife off as his sister to get powerful men to sleep with her so they wouldn't kill him. Happened twice. 
Abraham didn't believe that God was going to come through on his promises, and so he slept with his wife's maidservant. That's Abraham. Great promise. And then David. David, who everyone looked to. David's the man. Look at what Matthew says in verse 6. Matthew, he says, Jesse, the father of David the king. And then he says, and David was the father of Solomon. He could have just stopped there. That's the pattern in the genealogy, but he doesn't. He says, and David was the father of Solomon by, but he doesn't say Bathsheba. He says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. (laughs) It's like Matthew's like, I'm not going to let you forget the story. Bathsheba, you might be like, oh yeah, they had a great marriage eventually. Some stuff happened early on, I don't really remember it. Matthew's like, no, you're going to remember that David slept with the wife of one of his good friends and then had him put to death. (laughs) I mean, the story's not funny. What's funny is Matthew's like, man, let's make sure we include that. And the reason it's funny is, why would you include it? Genealogies back in that day are like resumes. Let me ask you, if you flunked out of the first college you went to, but then you went on and got a degree, when you're applying to a job and putting together your resume, you're not like, hey, I think I'll put in that I dropped out of college and I got a bunch. No, you just kind of forget about that first one. Put your best foot forward. Matthew, he refuses to do it and listing out name after name, and you could... You can just play a game. Just put your finger down, and we have this wonderful thing that people throughout the ages haven't had, which is the internet. You can put your finger down. You can type the person's name in, and every story is like this, every single one. It's like Matthew's putting a criminal lineup before us. He's intentionally drawing our attention to the scandals, and why does he do it? Why draw such attention to so much brokenness if his goal is to say, hey, leave everything to follow this man? Why not edit them out of the story? And the answer is because Jesus didn't edit them out of his story. And we think of God, and, and there's something deep within us that thinks God, God loves the good, dislikes the bad. God, when he moves, it's always in power and strength and He only moves through powerful, strong people. Matthew's saying no. He's telling us, as one author put it, that Jesus did not belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. Matthew's showing us through the very first words of his gospel not just the magnitude of the promises that Christ came to fulfill, but also the grace that he came to give. He's saying, here are these great promises, and basically he's saying, and anyone can come. Because if these fools made it in, you can make it in. And I think it's so important that we understand this grace, because when we don't, without grace, we struggle with shame. And I think shame is one of the greatest things that keeps us from moving forward in life. Shame, you could define it in a lot of ways. I would say shame is the intense feeling 
that we're so deeply flawed that we'll never really belong. When you, when you walk into church on Sunday and you look and you feel like an outsider and you see other people and it's like they're the insiders or at your job or anywhere else, that constant feeling like I'm never really going to belong, that's shame and it keeps us from moving forward. It keeps us from actually growing because we're trying to break into something instead of deal with something. We're trying to get on the inside instead of deal with this perpetual feeling of being on the outside. And our shame, it's dealt with fully and finally in Jesus Christ. Because he's not, he didn't edit them out of their, their, his story. He's not going to edit us out of his story. He offers a grace that welcomes us in. Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them as brothers and sisters. And I would say, if you've never put your faith in Christ, there's room for you in the family. There's actually, we got, we own storage units for you to put all the baggage in and you can bring it and we can go through it a little bit at a time. There's grace. And I would say, if you have put your faith in Christ, but you still feel these feelings of shame and Remember, there's a, there's a line leading up to Jesus filled with dysfunction and brokenness and sin. And if we've learned anything over the last 2,000 years, there's a line going out from Jesus filled with dis- dysfunction, brokenness, and sin. And our, our, our junk, it doesn't keep God from moving. But he does want us to address it so that we might know him more fully. As we come to the Lord's table... Near the end of Matthew, Jesus says he has this meal with his disciples where he says, this is my body broken for you. And he says, this is the cup of the covenant, my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is where he instituted the Lord's Supper. But then he also, he made this promise. He said, I'm not going to drink the fruit of this cup until we all drink it together. And then throughout Matthew and then throughout Revelation we're given this promise of a meal and we've talked about this meal before but the meal is almost if you think about it a family reunion where we're going to sit down with all of these people who are listed here and we're going to feast before the king and this meal it reminds us of that so if you're here and you're in Christ I encourage you to come to eat and to drink and to be reminded of the love God has for you and all that he has done in Christ for us if you haven't Put your faith in Christ. We ask that you not take part in this meal, but instead you put your faith in him. It gives us the hope of new beginnings, the hope of salvation. Let me pray.